it was a couple of weeks ago that I led you in a bit of a study, an overview of a theme that was perhaps new to some of us, uh, even was new to me when I began to really give it some thought, and that is a uh, theme was the eschatology of the book of Isaiah. The eschatology is simply a big old word that means last things, and the study of last things or the future for the people of God is something that is a great theme of Holy Scripture, and it's a great theme of the book of scriptures, but of, of, the, of the several books of scripture. But often we think of eschatology as something you learn in Bible college or seminary. You read about it in uh, big textbooks on the subject of eschatology. It's part of the ologies that are part of systematic theology, which is an endeavor to take the teaching of scripture and to sort of bring it all together and collate it under certain themes or heads of doctrine. But the Bible doesn't give us a theology that way. It doesn't come and give us uh, different categories of thought. Well, here's everything you need to know about God and theology proper. And here's everything you need to know about uh, sin and the theology of sin. And here's everything you need to know about the theology. It's not a textbook. The Bible is really a narrative. It's a story of the history of God with man. And God's creation of man and his image and likeness and humanity's fall from that relationship into which we were created of fellowship with God and knowing God and honoring God and serving God and glorifying God and through sin death entered into the world and with death came separation from God and it came, became something of what the Bible pictures as really going back to the place of existence before God made a habitable world for humanity. Remember the story of Genesis in chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the very next words are that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Now I don't know what the situation of the world was when that description prevailed. I simply know we couldn't, we couldn't live there. That was a description of a world that was not fit for human habitation. Of course, what uh, Genesis 1 tells us is that in six days, God fashioned the world. And he brought the world into being so that on the sixth day, he could say, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And uh, he blessed them and said, let them have dominion over the creation that he had made. In the previous six days, man was to be lord of the creation. He's God's image. And as God's image, he has a created sovereignty into which God had assigned him that work of being a steward um, in his name. And as God's image was in man, God's image would be spread through, all the, through, through, through the earth as man was fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. What would happen? Well, God's glory would fill the earth because God's glory would be in man his image. But human sin brought about a corruption of that image, brought about... Um, not that we're no longer God's image there's a sense in which we are but we clearly are not accurate image bearers of God you can't look at humanity and see the image of God you see it distorted and twisted um, because that's what sin does and also you see man at a great distance from God because sin has entered into the world your sins have separated between you and your God and so what the Bible is really all about is how does God restore what's sin corrupted how does God bring back Humanity to its created design. So in a real sense, what begins at creation in Genesis 1 ends in recreation 
in chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. So from beginning to end, the Bible is a book about restoration. It's a book about how God recreates and brings us back to um, the place of existence in a new world, a new heavens and a new earth that come down from heaven and from God. The old heavens and the old earth, in a sense, they pass away. There's continuity, but yet there's a new thing God does. He makes all things new. And when you see the books of the Bible, each of the books of the Bible have a place to play, a part to play in that overall design and picture of how God restores the world, how he restores humanity back to his created place that was lost as a result of sin. And probably the book of Isaiah really does more than most of the books of the Bible to give a clear picture of God's design at the end, of the end of all things. I mentioned a couple weeks ago when we first engaged in this thought of the eschatology of the book of Isaiah is that uh, St. Jerome was one of the early church fathers. He said of the book of Isaiah that it's a miniature Bible. And what he meant by that is that the great truths of Holy Scripture found everywhere to be found in, in wondrous concentration in the book of Isaiah. And um, some people think, well, there's a correlation between 66 books of the Bible and 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And, but yet, I don't think in Isaiah's time there were 66 chapters that he wrote. No, he wrote probably, I don't know how many scrolls in which the book of Isaiah was written upon. It was divided up into chapters and verses later on. Certainly not in Isaiah's time. But one thing that's true of the book of Isaiah is that it ends where Revelation ends. It ends with the new heavens and new earth. Chapter 65 and verse 17, God says, uh, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Let me get the exact language. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. That's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, when he says, for in Christ, behold, a new creation. Behold, I make Jerusalem to be a joy. Behold a new creation. Old things pass away. The former things are not remembered. All things become new. And the book of Revelation not only sees a new heavens and new earth, but it sees a heavenly Jerusalem coming down from God. You see a uniting of God and man in upon the earth once again, just like Genesis, where God dwelt with man. Man walked with God in the cool of the day, in the Garden of Eden. And now there's going to be this garden city, this new Eden that God's going to create, or that God creates, that comes down from heaven and unites heaven and earth. And that same vision Isaiah has in the final two chapters of his book, of this new heavens and new earth, this Jerusalem recreated, the city of God coming back to its rightful place as the place of God's dwelling. There's no need for a temple there because the Lamb is there. God is there. God's dwelling with his people in a new world. And that's the hope of the Bible. That's the hope of the Christian. And that's the hope of the 8th century B.C. prophet by the name of Isaiah. And what I endeavored to do, because I was really asked to do this by a group of pastors that uh, were having a, a Zoom fellowship every month. And for some reason, they've asked me if I would teach. They think that, look, I've uh, done a lot of study in the Old Testament, so uh, teach the Old Testament to us. And they've really 
challenge me to do this, assign this work to me. And um, it kind of moved out of a conversation I had with one of the pastors. And so I've been studying the book of Isaiah again. We went through it uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, a number of years ago, before Ezekiel, a long time ago. And now I'm returning to it, but this time not just going through bit by bit by bit by bit, but trying to see the overall sweep of the book. What I endeavored to do the last time we were together is I endeavored to say that the book of Ezekiel, in terms of uh, the book of Ezekiel, Isaiah, in terms of his eschatology, in terms of his future, you know what it's about in a nutshell? It's the way God recreates the city. Um, You look at chapter 1 and verse 1. Isaiah himself tells you what his subject is. When the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning what? Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. There's a vision that Isaiah has been given by God and it concerns the city. It concerns Jerusalem. It concerns the outlying areas of Jerusalem, which is the whole nation of Judah. But it's about, it's about how the city, the city in which the temple of God was, Zion, Mount the Mount, upon which the temple was built, the city of God, the city that's described in Psalm 46, is beautiful for elevation. The joy of the earth is Mount Zion on the side of the north, the city of the great king. It's the city of the great king. But this city in Isaiah's day, when Isaiah begins his ministry, is a city that's filled with evil and corruption. It's a city that did not know the God who ought to have dwelled there. The God whose house was there in the temple. And you read the first chapter and you see that it's a sinful nation. In verse uh, 6, I'm sorry, verse uh, 4. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, chapter 1 and verse 4. Offspring of evildoers, children that deal corruptly. I think I read that. They've forsaken Yahweh, they've despised the Holy One of Israel, they are utterly estranged. And so it is a wicked, rebellious, sinful city. And the story of the book of Isaiah is how God renews the city and restores the city. And changes the city from a city wicked and under divine judgment to a city in which God again comes and dwells in the midst of his people. And um, we went and we walked over some of the major passages that spoke of the city. And um, I'm not going to go back over that. There's a message on sermon audio that you can listen to called the eschatology of Isaiah where we went through a lot of that material. But I did have something I wanted to read that I came across and to kind of give a distillation of the sort of things I was saying two weeks back. So I want to read that to you. It's from a theologian. I guess he's German. Because his first name is Ulrich. <laughs> that's a German guy. Earl Ulrich Burgess, I think it is. I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation. But this is what he says. He says, the book of Isaiah is a drama of Zion. It's a drama of Zion in which the readers or hearers witness the transformation of Jerusalem from a place of judgment into a place of eschatological salvation for the people of God and the nations. I could have read that last time and been done because that's it in a nutshell. That's everything that I was trying to say in a nutshell. The book of Isaiah is a drama of Zion in which the readers 
or hearers witness the transformation of Jerusalem from a place of judgment into a place of eschatological salvation for the people of God and the nations. It's the restoration of the city and the impact of the city that's restored upon the people of God, the remnant people of God that are spoken of throughout the book, and the nations of the world. And so it's a, it's a book that not only speaks of blessing coming to the people of Israel, but the blessing of Abraham coming through the nation of Israel onto all of the nations of the earth. So that's a pretty big picture. It's a pretty big picture. And that is what the book of Isaiah is all about. And I've been charged the next time we do our Zoom meeting with uh, going a little bit deeper into some of these things. And I do intend to do that in terms of what I'm going to look at in the way of um, the city of God, Zion, Jerusalem, where the temple was, and uh, how that city becomes the place of the peoples of the nations coming to dwell with God. So we'll do that the next time, and how it divides up into the different sections of the book of Isaiah. But um, what I'd like to do, since it's summertime, and since I'm expecting to get a book on the book of Jeremiah that I want to get before I really proceed much further in the book of Jeremiah, we're kind of slow walking our way through chapter 2 at this time. And uh, there's a book I have on order. It's one of these books. The last two books I bought were terribly expensive. I never bought a book that cost that much. But in getting the book on Isaiah that I bought, and getting the book, uh, at least I hope, about Jeremiah, it was well worth the cost. I mean, just brilliant stuff. But anyway, that's another story. So I thought to do, at least for maybe the summer, maybe half the summer, see how far it goes, is just to give you something of uh, the different parts of the book of Isaiah and how it bears upon the subject of the city and how it bears upon the subject of the sin of the city and God's judgment upon the city and God's restoration of the city and how all that's worked out really all through the book. Every single part of the book of, Jeremiah, book of Isaiah has those things as their theme. It's coming back to it over and over and over again. And I think it's brilliant the way it's laid out. I'd like to share some of that with you. And so I think through the summer months, uh, it'll give me time to develop that and to make it clear uh, to you who come for these uh, will be evening messages that will come. But for now, today, my 40 minutes, <laughs> I'd just like to say something about Isaiah and his call to do this work and how that bears upon the rest of the book. Because it's an interesting thing. In the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Jeremiah, you read about the call of the prophet. But in both of those books and most of the other books, the call of the prophet is mentioned in the opening of the book. So God came to Ezekiel by the book or the river Kibar and made him who was trained to be a priest to become a prophet to the exiled people in Babylon. That's what Ezekiel is about. But the call is in chapter 1, or 1 to 3. Anyway, right at the opening, there's God coming to him, the appearance of God, and then the call to him uh, to become uh, a prophet. And then in the book of um, Jeremiah, right in the opening chapter, right away, it's God calling him and his reaction saying, I'm a youth and I cannot do this. And God telling him, who was the, to Moses, he said, who is it that made the mouth? But God just wipes away that argument and says, Jeremiah, you're my man, and I'm going to give you a hardened enough face and ability to do the work that I've called you to do. But you come to Isaiah, and you don't have a call of Isaiah in chapter 1, 
or in chapter 2, or in chapter 3, or in chapter 4, or in chapter 5. There's five chapters that you go through in the book of Isaiah till you come to a place where there's something of a calling and a commissioning that takes place. It waits till chapter 6. In the first five chapters, we're told about the city. We're told about its sins. We're told about its wickedness. We're told about its hypocrisy in its worship. We're told about its injustice and its oppressions and how it mistreated the most weak and helpless of people, the widows and the orphans. And God comes full scale against the people for these sins and calls them to repentance and calls them back to himself. But yet says that the city will be judged. It will come under judgment and yet also it's also going to be restored in some way and fashion. The faithless city, the whorish city, will become the faithful city. But five chapters of this sort of stuff, calling to mind the sins of the people, yes, restoration as well, but yet you get in the picture. You get in the picture of what God is going to do with the wicked, sinful, rebellious people and how God is going to restore that people to himself. So now, after getting five chapters of that, why do you think chapter 6 comes along and tells us of Isaiah's commission? My thing thought about it is, I used to think differently, but I th- this is what I think now. I think that Isaiah himself is a case in point. Isaiah himself becomes, as an individual, a model of the restorative power of God. The restorative power of God's grace. Because what is it that happens in chapter 6? Well, Isaiah sees something in a vision in the year that King Uzziah died. Now again, King Uzziah was a king who reigned for 50 years. Imagine that. Imagine having a president for 50 years. I don't think that you know, Roosevelt was the longest and uh, that wasn't even much more than half a generation. Well, a lot of people never knew any other president than Roosevelt when he died in 44, I think it was. Right? 44? <laughs> 45. He died in 45. Okay. Anyway, so, um, yeah, he would have been inaugurated in 45. That's right. Um, yeah, so he's the king everyone knew for most of their lifetimes, 50 years that he reigned. And yet he died. Even a 50-year reign of a king comes to an end. Human kings die. But in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw a king who never dies. He sees the everlasting king. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. That expression, high and lifted up, comes at us again three other times, two other times in the, um, the book. It comes in the servant's song of chapter 52, where the servant of the Lord is seen as high and lifted up and dealing wisely. It's the picture of Jesus as the mediator, the picture of the servant who dies and rises again, exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high and carrying out God's will and purpose perfectly. It's the um, thing that uh, John says in John chapter 12, Isaiah saw when he saw him and spoke of his glory. Um, so Isaiah sees the exalted Jesus. And then it's also in chapter 57 where God speaks in terms of um, the place where he dwells. The place where he dwells. 
And it's introduced this way. Thus says the high and lofty one. Thus says this high and exalted and lofty one who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. He says, I dwell with him that is of a poor and a contrite spirit. So God dwells in two places. He dwells in the heavens, exalted, high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. But he also inhabits the lives and hearts of the people who are made poor and contrite of soul. So, again, it's a picture of this exalted God who designs to dwell with men once again. To take the wicked, rebellious city under judgment and turn it into the city that honors him and receives him and worships him and adores him and dwells with him and communes with him. And all this, of course, comes through the mediation of the Lord Jesus as the great servant of the Lord that we encounter in the um, 52nd chapter and 53rd chapter of the book. So he sees this throne picture, the God enthroned in majesty and glory. He's probably in the earthly temple at this time, or in the temple precincts, and he sees this heavenly picture of the heavenly throne of God. And it's probably also a temple picture, as we read about tongues taking coals from off of an altar. There's an altar scene as well. And so there's the burning of uh, probably incense. It's probably the incense altar. It's probably not the sacrificial altar. That was outside of the Holy of Holies. I'm sorry, that was outside of the of the temple proper. It was outside of the tent of, uh, of meeting. It was um, where the people came in the court. That's where the burnt offering altar was. But yet within the Holy of Holies where the priests went and did their services, there was another altar. And it was an incense altar. And both of those altars had the capacity to bring about reconciliation with God, to bring about forgiveness of sin. It wasn't only the blood atonement, but it was also the offering of that sweet savor in the nostrils of God that brought peace with God and his people. And so uh, I think that's exactly what you see here. You see atonement made for Isaiah's sin, First of all, Isaiah becomes conscious of the reality of his sin. And how did he do that? Well, it's this vision of God. It's the way he saw God. If he saw God just as the, his buddy, or the God who is uh, just a man upstairs, you know, knock on his door, see if he has any sugar. And we have all this, this demeaning kind of language that we use with respect to God. But the language of the Bible is that this God is an exalted God. This God is the God, if you saw him, you would tremble. You'd fall at his feet as one dead. If you saw something of God, you'd simply have trembling all over your body. You wouldn't be able to be in his presence and live. No man can see me and live. This is the sight of God that's in a vision. This temple vision of this exalted God, high and lifted up. And above him stood the seraphim. Above him were the angelic, these angelic creatures. Again, in the in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were these other creatures called um, cherubim. Those were the guardians of the throne of, of God. Remember, the cherubim is replaced outside of the gates of Eden with a sword that turned every which way to keep the way of the tree of life. 
You know, it's funny that we have this view that cherubim, little cherubs, little rosy cheek, you know, pump little kids, that's what the cherubim are like. They're frightening creatures. They were frightening creatures. They were the guardians of the throne of God. It's a scene of majesty. These seraphims, they're burning ones. That's what literally it means. And six of these seraphims, again, these are angelic creatures. And one thing about angelic creatures is they're not sinful. They're not fallen. At least these creatures, clearly, they're in the God's presence. And they're in God's presence, and they call one to another. As with, with their wings, they cover their face, and they cover their feet. And they fly, and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. It's an amazing message. And it's an amazing message that Isaiah doesn't forget. What he saw of the holiness of God in the vision what he heard about the holiness of God by the chant of the seraphim holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts the whole earth is filled with his glory Isaiah simply never forgot he came to call God as one of his most frequently used titles the Holy One of Israel there's only one or two other of the prophets that use that title the Holy One of Israel But Isaiah used it over and over and over again. He never forgot of what he saw of the holiness of God. He called God the Holy One of Israel. He speaks of him in terms of the high and lifted up one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. All of the expressions he uses about God in this book is really determined by this reality of what he sees here in the temple. And then the note that the whole earth is full of his glory. This again a note that gets repeated over and over and over again. There's a vision he has of the God calling to the nations in the light of the coming of the Davidic king and the nations coming to be the servants of God. And it says in that day, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Because that's the whole design of God's purpose in terms of the end times. Is that his word will spread forth to the nations. The nations will come to be the people of God. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And the knowledge of the Lord won't be just hidden into one nation like the nation of Israel. It will be diffused throughout all of the nations. Make disciples of the nations, Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The earth is filled with the glory of God. How is it filled with the glory of God? Well, because the glory of God is revealed in the gospel and is received by those who believe the gospel, who in turn are transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's us. We are those who bear God's glory. And as believers are gained and brought into the kingdom, the glory of God is extended in the world. He's not stopped being as glorious as he's always been in terms of his omnipresence. But there's a special presence of God through the Spirit in you and in me who come to believe. And every Christian who comes to believe... What an emotive for evangelism, to see God's glory revealed, to see God's glory extended in the earth, the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, as the church of Jesus Christ grows. 
I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, that's the picture Isaiah receives. And it's a picture he never forgot. But it's a picture when he first saw it, when he first saw the Lord and saw the vision and heard this declaration of the seraphim. He didn't say, oh, guess it's time to just uh, have a little praise session with the Lord. Wonderful to praise. Wonderful just to give thanks. Let's do a little bit of dancing, gospel dancing. Just dance a gospel jig. Just, just feels so great being in the presence of this God. Well, actually, no, no. He says in the words of verse 5, I said, woe is me. Again, you look back in chapter 5 and you see God keeps saying, woe to those who woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness God's woe is upon those who join house to house and field to field read through it about five or six of these woes that are expressed upon those that do evil deeds and Isaiah sees God and I don't know what his view of himself was prior to that vision but once he sees that vision all he can say of himself is woe to me not just woe to them woe to me I'm the one under judgment. I'm the one guilty of sin. I'm the one. Who is undone. The ESV says, for I'm lost. This idea of being devastated. Being stricken with horror. How do you continue to live once you have this realization about yourself? And who you are? As you stand before this living God. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And yes, Isaiah, how did you come to those conclusions about yourself? Were you just sitting outside on your porch and you had a Coca-Cola in your hand? I gave you the benefit of the proper drink, right, Mike? Proper drink, Coca-Cola. And you're contemplating life. And just you come to the conclusion, hmm, I'm an unclean man. I have unclean lips. Well, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Clear calculation I've made just evaluating myself in the cool of the day. No. He says, For my eyes have seen the King. Yahweh of hosts. He's struck with the knowledge of himself because of the God whom he sees. He sees himself in relationship to this God. And he's struck with the sense of his own guilt, his own undoneness. Maybe the city's in ruins, but so am I. Maybe the city's under judgment, but so am I. Maybe the city is a city that's wicked and rebellious, but so am I. So am I. The city needs recovery, but so do I. The city needs restoration, yes, but so do I. So do I. So I say it's the story of the conversion comes in the midst of the trouble of the city, of the need of the city. And Isaiah says, look, if God can restore me, why, why can't he not restore the people? I'm one of the people. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So if I, a man of unclean lips, can be restored, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, cannot they be restored? 
an encouragement to continue on in the ministry of, that God gives to him. Because he himself experiences not only the holiness of God, not only the majesty of God, not only the brilliant light of the presence of God, but he also experiences restoration. Verse 6 tells us, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Again, one of the themes of the book of Isaiah is that God deals with sin in his people with the spirit of burning. The spirit of burning. There's a burning coal that comes off of an altar. An altar that's an altar of incense. An altar that expresses the prayers that are given unto God. And Isaiah finds himself cleansed by the spirit of burning. That burning away of his sin. Burning away of his transgressions. That's one reason the land is made bare of people. Because it was a sinful land. It needed to be cleansed. And the way the land becomes cleansed is that the people are evicted. They go into deportation. They go away into Babylon. And only in Babylon do they get things right. Are they healed of their idolatries? Do they cease the wickedness of their worship of the false gods of the nations? And like Daniel and his friends, they, they are faithful in exile. As Jeremiah calls them to be faithful in the exile in chapter 29, when he writes a letter to the exiles, as Ezekiel seeks to bring the exiles to be faithful to the Lord, they come back a chastened people. They come back a people that uh, can now once again populate the land and not defile it, at least in the way they did. At least in the way they did. It's not perfection. It's not what happens when Jesus makes all things new. But yet God is pleased to make Isaiah an example of what's possible. That the people can be cleansed, the spirit of burning can take away their sins, their sins can be atoned for. How do we know this Isaiah? How do we know this possibility can be? Isaiah says, look at me, look at me. I'm the prime example of what a God of grace and mercy and covenant love can do. Well, no sooner is Isaiah cleansed that he's commissioned. Again, God doesn't put Isaiah through this whole picture of seeing his glory in order to crush him, in order to embarrass him, in order to just snuff him out. No. God's concern again is to cleanse him and then to use him. To commission him as a cleansed man to go and speak his word to the people of unclean lips as one whose lips have been cleansed and so I heard the voice of Yahweh saying who shall I send and who will go for us I know a lot of Christians want to and they read the Old Testament see the Trinity anywhere they can find it and uh, Two things in this chapter that often are turned to as, quote, text proofs of the Trinity. One is the three times God's called holy. As if the seraphim were saying, holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't think so. 
a lot of times things in the Old Testament get repeated, sometimes three times. And the purpose for that is to speak of emphasis, speak of something that uh, is just to be seen in, uh, in, in a strong way of emphasizing a reality. <clears throat> and then sometimes this is a passage where the plural is found, where people say, well, look at that, God's speaking plurally. So who's, who, who will go for us? So God's more than just a singularity, he's a plurality, so this must be something of an inter-Trinitarian discussion. The father's asking the son, and the son's speaking back to the father about whom shall I send and who will go for us. There's one problem with that. And that's the fact that you have in the 22nd chapter of the book of First Kings, you have a picture <clears throat> of a prophet saying he saw a vision of the Lord. And the Lord is looking to set up Ahab to fall in battle against the Syrians. And what the Lord does is says, who will be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets that Ahab is listening to? And one of the angels says, I will go. I will go. So this is God speaking in the presence of the heavenly hosts. This is God speaking in the presence of the seraphim, of the angels who Hebrews tells us are ministering spirits who bring salvation or who minister to those who are the heirs of salvation. This is a picture of God saying to his angels, thinking this is a work for angels to do. Who will go for us? And Isaiah, in that presence of the heavenly hosts, says, why not me? <laughs> why not me? To me, that's an amazing thing. You say, hey, look, angels are more fit than I would go, be to be a messenger for the Lord. <clears throat> but Isaiah says, no, no, I've been cleansed. And I'm qualified to go to the people of unclean lips as one who has been cleansed from my unclean lips to bring the message of God to them. Here am I. Send me. And God gives him the commission to go to the people. To go to the people with a message that is not going to get many followers. It's not going to bring many to repentance. The ultimate end of things is judgment at least in terms of what eventuates in the Babylonian captivity but the people are going to be snoozing at Isaiah's message their hearts are going to be hardened their ears are going to be dull their ears I'm sorry the ears are going to be heavy their eyes are going to be blind and this is something of God's judgment upon the nation you, know, you look at this listen to the description <laughs> Must they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, wait a minute. Shouldn't God want their eyes to see? Shouldn't he want their ears to hear? Shouldn't he want their hearts to understand? Shouldn't he want them to turn and be healed? Again, Isaiah is an example of someone that did turn and he was healed. But the reality was that Isaiah's ministry was not going to be a ministry of mass conversions. It was going to be a ministry that he would have to endure and persevere in, in a time of difficulty. In a time when many would not hear his word at all. They're bent upon their rebellion. And you see, the problem here is their idolatry. 
Because you know what God says about idols, those who worship idols? First of all, God describes idols in this way. This is Psalm 115. There's also another passage that speaks just in this way. I can't recall it. Might be another Psalm, maybe 135 or something like that. But God says about idols this He says that they have eyes. You know, you make an idol, you don't make an impressive idol, you make an idol with eyes glaring eyes, maybe many eyes maybe a multitude of eyes because we have an all seeing idol an all seeing God that we worship and they're given ears again you go to the museum of, of art and you look at the different cultures and their artifacts of the, the idols they worshipped and they all have ears, they all have eyes they're very very human like and the God says they have eyes but they don't see they have ears but they don't hear they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have feet, but they go nowhere. <laughs> and God says, they that worship them shall become like them. One of the judgments upon humanity is we're imitative creatures. When you worship something, and you adore something, and you love something, then you tend to be like something, the thing that you worship the thing that you idolize. And again, I've illustrated this many times in terms of sports heroes. If you like, well, Cindy's gone, so I can say, if you like Tom Brady, you want to learn to throw a football like Tom Brady. If you hate Tom Brady, you're going to find somebody else you like, and you're going to learn to do what they do. You want to be like them. I told you guys of a guy I saw in a in a motorcycle jacket and sunglasses, his hair back a certain way. And uh, I knew he was looking like and dressing like and acting like a 1950s movie star by the name of James Dean, who died in a... I'm sorry? Thank you. <laughs> we never be given the date of his death. And I believe it was a car ex- car crash or a motorcycle crash, one of the two. I think it was a car. Anyway, he was speeding. He was speeding and his life just got snuffed out. And for some reason, people, because he made three films, people think of him as uh, uh, just something that they, that they like. They like James Dean artifacts, James Dean pictures. I think Andy Warhol might have done a pictures of a bunch of James Deans like he did a bunch of Marilyn Monroe's I'm not positive that I think that something like that was done and so you love something, you adore something you worship something you look like them, you dress like them you become like them, we're imitative creatures and God says these dead idols lifeless idols that's what their worshippers are like they're not going to hear, they're not going to see they're not going to understand they're not going to do And so Isaiah's ministry is going to be not a very impressive one. And so he says in verse 11, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities be waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And uh, part of that is the northern kingdom was taken into captivity in Isaiah's lifetime. Later on, in the time that Isaiah anticipates in his prophecy the Babylonians are going to take Judah into captivity and the land is going to be waste it's uninhabited and God's judgment will come upon the people but that judgment is not complete in full and total because then he goes on in the words of verse 
13, it's as though a tenth remain in it. It will be burnt again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. There's a stump that remains. In chapter 11, he's going to speak about a spring, a root that comes out of the stump in the dry, dry ground, and that's the Messiah. God's going to bring renewal and restoration that ultimately will come from the Davidic king who will come uh, to bring back the reign of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's ultimately the hope of Christ that will come. But with the hope of Christ is the hope of renewed fellowship with God. The hope of renewed righteousness in the city. The hope of restored people who will worship sincerely and not hypocritically who will serve with integrity and not with duplicity who will love and honor God and love one another and where righteousness will reign and peace and joy everlasting will be the portion of God's people and that's what Isaiah is given to understand his ministry is going to be like it's in a fallen world it's not going to be perfect in his life there's going to be many discouragements along the way yet the ultimate outcome is one of hope and so Isaiah is going to speak lots and lots in his prophecy of judgment. But then it's always the note of God's restoring grace, of the deserts becoming sp- waters of, springs of waters once again, of the land that's been devastated becoming fruitful once again, of the city that's corrupt and wicked and rebellious returning to God and joy and peace eternal being being reigning in the restored creation that God will bring ultimately so I don't think we can really understand the prophecy of Isaiah his future hope without seeing his own experience without seeing his own vision of the Lord without seeing his own experience of the grace and mercy of the living God and I think it's instructive to us that the energy for which we will continue on in faithfulness even in our latter years is as we dwell upon the God whom we serve as we're humbled in his presence in the face of the reality of his glory and our sinfulness but yet also tasting deeply of the waters of his salvation of the reality of his restorative grace of the reality of his spirit that purges away our sin and reconciles us unto God. And I hope at least in some measure that's an encouraging message as we conclude our time together this Lord's Day. I don't know if I stayed within 40 minutes. I tried hard. But let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer. I did go over. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the fellowship we've had with one another and with You. And we pray that You go with us throughout the days of the coming week and that all we would put our hand to do, we would do to Your glory. We'd ask in Jesus' name. Amen.